Uh, well, do turn to the passage. I'm just going to say a few words before Annie begins uh, to read uh, the passage to us, but it'll help if you've got John chapter 6 open in front of you. On the Blue Bibles, that's 865, Brown Bibles, 1656. John chapter 6. We are working our way through the Gospel of John, which is one of our four first century biographies of Jesus. This particular biography was written by the eyewitness known as John, son of Zebedee, and he probably wrote it toward the end of the first century, not a little bit earlier uh, as the other Gospels were written, which gave him time to reflect on the depths of the riches of the story of Jesus. He tells the same story as the other Gospels. If you've read all four, you know it's the same basic story, but John goes deeper There's a profundity to this gospel that is quite striking. And he brings out those riches in several ways. Uh, We've seen before that he begins the uh, gospel with a prelude. The first 18 verses of this gospel, quite unlike the other gospels, uh, is a kind of giveaway of all the major themes that you're about to read. It's very helpful. It's like keys to unlock the whole thing. And the major key is that we are not reading a simple human biography. But way more than that, we are reading the account of God himself unveiled in flesh and blood. The other way John brings out his uh, peculiar uh, depths is in arranging the whole story of Jesus around seven miracles, seven signs, whereas the other gospel writers have many more signs than seven. John tells us he knows of many more signs than seven. When we get to the end of the gospel, he says, uh, basically, if I listed everything, you know, we'd be here till Jesus comes back. Roughly, he says that. Uh, but these seven signs are written in this gospel to give us a clue to Jesus' genuine identity and uh, mission. Uh, today, we're going to look at signs four and five, the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 and the miracle of walking on water. The third way John brings out his uh, riches is through subtle commentary. It's quite unlike the other Gospels. Sometimes when you're reading John's Gospel, you suddenly get a comment and you're not sure, is that Jesus speaking or is that narrator speaking? And often it's the narrator speaking, giving kind of theological depth and commentary. And we're going to see a good example of that today in this little passing comment John makes in the introduction to the miracle when he says... Uh, This happened during the Passover or in the build-up to the Passover. And that becomes the key that unlocks everything we're going to read today. Our passage contains two of the most famous and outrageous, depending on your perspective, miracles of Jesus. The so-called feeding of the 5,000, the loaves and the fishes, uh, uh, recorded in a beautiful mosaic uh, in Galilee, that beautiful uh, mosaic there, and the walking on water, where Jesus is meant to have walked on water on that very lake Uh, behind me. Now the feeding miracle appears in all four gospels so you know it must be important and in John's gospel it's followed by a giant speech of Jesus about him being the bread of life. So he does something bready and then he gives a long speech about him being the bread of life. So instantly you can see the way John sets this up. These miracles are not just miracles, they are signals which is why he calls them signs. They signal something Uh, about the character that we're reading of. So we're going to hear John's eyewitness account of these two miracles. Then I'm going to offer some philosophical and historical remarks about miracles uh, for the perhaps slightly skeptical in our audience. 
Then we're going to read the second half of John chapter 6 and um, we'll ask the question, what do these signs signal? Okay, John chapter 6, starting at verse 1. Thanks, Annie. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, "'Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat?' He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go amongst so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them. And filled twelve baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples came down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realised that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realised that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. 
So they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Well, what can we say about the philosophy and history of miracles? Just a few comments. The philosophical discussion about miracles has basically ended in a grumpy stalemate between atheists and theists, as both sides uh, recognise that really what you think about the rationality or otherwise of miracles boils down to what kind of universe you think we're living in. If you think we're living in one kind of universe, miracles are an impossibility. If you believe we're living in another kind of universe, uh, miracles become rational if there's good evidence for them. So to put it as succinctly as I can, if I hold that the laws of nature define the limits of what is possible in the universe, that no lawgiver or God exists behind the laws, then in principle, miracles cannot be viewed as rational. And no amount of evidence could be accepted as evidence that a miracle has actually taken place. See, if you only believe in the laws of nature, something that breaks the laws of nature uh, will seem to you implausible. But view it the other way. If I hold that the laws of nature do not define the limits of what is possible, that the laws themselves point to a lawgiver or God behind the laws, then since such a lawgiver could act through and beyond the natural laws, it is rational to believe in the possibility of miracles. And I am free to accept a miracle when there is good evidence in its favor. This is simply to say you cannot solve the riddle of miracles and their possibility until you solve whether you think there is a God behind the universe. If you think there is a mind behind these majestic laws that uh, govern the universe, well, then you can believe in miracles. Now, the interesting thing is plenty of biblical scholars have held in uh, the first assumption. You may think, but if they're atheists, why are they biblical scholars? Well, welcome to the wonderful world of biblical scholarship. Um, and there are several strategies for interpreting a passage like John 6 if you're in that sceptical camp. One is to just say the stories are made up. Not many scholars say that anymore, but uh, the, a lot of scholars used to say they were just inventions, frauds of the early Christians to make Jesus look good. The other strategy is to say that the stories like in John 6 are myths, intentional myths. Now, this doesn't mean simply made up. It means mythopoetic parables to illustrate spiritual truths. If you've ever come across John Shelby Spong, a former Anglican bishop in the US, this is exactly his uh, view. So he would say, of course Jesus didn't make lots of bread out of very little bread. That was never intended to say that. This is really just a story of how Jesus can spiritually nourish you if you listen to his teaching. Okay? Uh, it's a myth. Uh, the third is to say that the stories can be naturally explained. And this was a favorite of Enlightenment critics of, uh, of the Gospels. To, to give you some almost funny examples, there's an 18th century scholar uh, called Carl Friedrich Barth, not to be uh, confused with Karl Barth, the 20th century theologian, who, who basically said that Jesus walking on the water can be explained 
as uh, Jesus uh, walking on logs that are frequently seen on Lake Galilee. And the disciples confused it with a walking on water. A natural explanation. Uh, this guy, 19th century Heinrich Paulus, uh, actually said that the feeding of the 5,000 miracle isn't a miracle in that sense. It's naturally explained. When the boy revealed his packed lunch, everyone felt guilty and brought out their secret packed lunch as well. And everyone had enough to eat. It's sweet and it's nonsense if you happen to believe there's a God behind the laws of nature who can work in and through and beyond the laws of nature as he wishes. Well, that's the philosophy There's an interesting historical discussion as well. I may have said this before, um, but it's, it's quite a striking thing for people to get their heads around. Virtually every scholar writing on the topic of the historical Jesus today, even the most skeptical, agree that Jesus did things everyone at the time thought were miracles. That is a historical conclusion. And this is because the evidence is so early and widespread. They don't say he actually did miracles. They say that he must have done things everyone thought were miracles. Otherwise, we can't explain uh, how come we have so much evidence. And the way to think about the evidence, the thing that historians find compelling, is that if miracles were only found in one late source, say the Gospel of John. Imagine the Gospel of John was the only one to record a miracle, and all the other earlier sources had no miracles. You can be sure historians, and quite validly really from a historical point of view, would say that uh, the original Jesus wasn't a miracle worker, but they started to evolve, you know, the history evolved into being a miracle worker. The problem is, miracles of Jesus appear right across the sources, and all scholars know this. Now, you don't have to worry about the details of this. We spent an hour on this slide uh, at at Sydney University when we we do this. But basically, the punchline is, historians recognise in uh, in our sources eight separate sources that haven't been copied from one another from within 60 years that all refer to the miracles of Jesus. So if you're going to throw out that he really had a reputation as a healer, then you're actually throwing out historical method. Here uh, is a good comparison with the other three closest parallels we have from the ancient world. Honey is, you don't need to know who he was, but he was meant to have done a miracle. And we know of his miracle from one source, written for 150 years after his death. We have a second source, but that's uh, 250 years after his death. What do you do with that? What does the historian do with that? Yeah, it's really hard to tell. Hanina is a Jewish rabbi who's meant to have done a healing or two, but he's referred to in one source, and it's 350 years after Hanina is dead. A good pagan parallel is Apollonius of Tyana, who's meant to have done all sorts of miracles that look quite similar to Jesus, but we know of him through one writing, one source, and it's from 120 years after Apollonius' death. Compare that with Jesus, and you have a sense of why even sceptical scholars think we're dealing with a very different kind of historical evidence. We have three independent sources, separate sources from one another, uh, within 20 years of Jesus, referring to his miracles. We have eight within 60 years. So that even a usually sceptical scholar like Paula Fredrickson of Boston University, who is no Christian and doesn't even believe in miracles, writes, Did Jesus of Nazareth then perform miracles? I do not believe that God occasionally suspends the operation of what David Hume, the Scottish philosopher, called natural law. What I think Jesus might possibly have done, in other words, must conform to what I think is possible. Which sounds like she's going to say he didn't do miracles, but listen. So to answer my own question, yes, I think that Jesus probably did perform deeds that contemporaries viewed as miracles. Notice she's chosen her wording very carefully. She's not saying Jesus actually did miracles. She's saying the evidence is good enough enough for us to conclude that he did things everyone else thought were miracles. To which I want to reply, 
Well, if there's enough evidence to convince scholars who don't believe in the possibility of miracles that Jesus did things everyone thought were miracles, then there is obviously also enough evidence to convince those who are open to the possibility of miracles that Jesus actually did miracles. Because that's the same evidence. We have exactly the kind of evidence you'd expect the actual miracle working to leave behind. It's enough to convince people who don't believe in miracles Jesus did things everyone thought were miracles. It is surely enough to convince us who do think miracles are possible that he actually did miracles. And I believe he did miracles. I believe in the God who arranged the world so that grain could be made into bread by human hands. I believe in that world. So it is entirely rational for me to think God himself could do that instantaneously, making lots of bread out of very little bread. I believe that God gives every particle its existence and character in every moment. So it is entirely rational for me to believe that God could, if he chose to, place his feet upon the water, particle upon particle, and walk. That's the uh, philosophy and history. What about the theology? What do Jesus' signs signal? The first thing to notice is that there's often great ambiguity in John's Gospel in the way people respond to Jesus' signs. Hopefully, because you've been reading John's Gospel, you're already aware of this. When you hear report of people believing in Jesus en masse, you should be a little bit suspicious because it doesn't often work out like that. People often only half believe and with mixed motives. So to remember that really classic passage that I think is one of the interpretative keys of the first part of John, back in chapter 2, verse 23, chapter 2, verse 23, uh, we read, Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name, which sounds excellent. Except then you read in the next sentence, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. And then the very next sentence introduces us to Nicodemus, a Pharisee, who comes to Jesus because of the miracles, but is a million miles away from the truth. So we should be a little bit suspicious, coming over back, back to uh, chapter 6, a little bit suspicious about the introduction in chapter 6, verse 2, where John tells us a great, a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. We know not to be too impressed with that just yet. We know to ask the question, uh, uh, they've seen the miracles, but they, do they know what they signal? They love the gifts that Jesus keeps handing out but have they come to know the giver? And our suspicions are confirmed by the time we get to the end of this story. If you glance down at verses 14 to 15, this glorious story of making lots of bread out of very little bread leads people to want to make him king by force, which I know sounds really bizarre, but um, after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. The, cra- the crowd sees this sign as a sign of brute strength. And so they conclude, let's make him king. En masse, they think, he's the rebel king to get rid of the Romans who have occupied us for 
nearly 100 years by the time uh, Jesus does this. And Jesus sees their motives and, and heads off to a quiet place by himself. For some, the motives are even worse than that. Glance down at um, 6.25, where the same crowd tracks Jesus down on the other side of the lake, but it turns out they just really want another feed. Their motives are incredibly mixed. 6.25, 6.25. When they found him on the other side of the lake... They asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus doesn't answer that question. He says, very truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. The crowd liked the show. They loved the fill. But they didn't see the signs as signs of Jesus' identity and mission. And the rest of chapter 6 explains what these signs signal. Amidst all this ambiguity, chapter 6 explains what they're about. If the walking on the water miracle points to Jesus' rule over nature as the one with the authority of the creator himself, the feeding of the 5,000 is more specifically about Jesus' giving himself to the world as bread. That's what the miracle's about. He came not as a political king or conqueror, not to fill hungry bellies. He came to give himself as bread of eternal life. And the clue to all of this is tucked away in John's little editorial aside in verse 4. If you come back to verse 4. Because he tells us when this happened. And this turns out to be the key that unlocks everything. When did it happen? When the Jewish Passover festival was near. And we're meant to be thinking Passover at this point. And that unlocks everything. In order to understand the speech of Jesus that Annie's about to read out in a second, I promise. Uh, You've got to remember that the Passover festival was two festivals in one. And as soon as you understand that, you'll understand what Jesus is about to say. It's two festivals. We know it's a sacrificial lamb festival, right? On the first day of Passover, they sacrifice a lamb. The blood of the lamb is splashed against the base of the altar in the temple in Jerusalem. And then the family eats the flesh of the lamb. And it's a great big reminder of salvation from Egypt. When God's judgment fell on Egypt centuries earlier, it passed over the Israelites who had sacrificed the lamb. Okay, that's the meaning of that part of the festival. But less well-known to us, but not to Jews, uh, is that it's also an eight-day bread festival. In fact, the Passover festival is called the Festival of Unleavened Bread. For the eight days following the lamb sacrifice, they eat special bread without yeast as a reminder that when they fled from Egypt centuries earlier uh, into the freedom of becoming a new nation, they didn't have time to uh, yeast their bread. And so they eat flattened bread to this day. It's a bread Festival. Now, hold all that in mind. Sacrificial blood, flesh, and bread. And now we'll hear the, the passage read. I'll make a few remarks and then I promise we'll conclude. So, from verse 35, thanks, Annie. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. 
All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. At this, the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus said. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. And here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this, while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. On hearing it, many of the disciples said, this is a hard teaching, who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? 
Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who though one of the twelve was later to betray him. (laughs) There's so much there. I mean, if we took this line by line, we'd be doing John all through the year. Um, So I want to zero in on what seems to me the heart of this passage. This speech, in isolation, could seem arbitrary and weird. All that stuff about bread, and then the bread suddenly becomes flesh. It's, It's really weird until you remember the Passover. And you remember that the Passover is precisely a bread festival and a flesh festival. It's about eating uh, bread that symbolizes liberation and life and eating the lamb that is the sacrifice for our sins. And Jesus fulfills these motifs. He will give himself on the cross so that he becomes the true Passover lamb, so that any who believe in him, who trust him, who, as it were, feed on him, will have eternal life. And all of this comes together in the paragraph, uh, verse 53 to 59, which I'll read again because it seems to me everything Jesus is saying comes to a climax here. Verse 53. Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. There's a stark reminder, friends, that not everyone will be saved. As attractive as that idea is, it makes a mockery of the teaching of Jesus. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. But whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink, Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Now that paragraph almost sounds like the Last Supper, doesn't it? You've got bread equals flesh, and you've got drink that is blood. Yeah? And it's interesting because John doesn't have a Last Supper scene. The other three Gospels have that Last Supper where Jesus uh, breaks bread and uh, hands out wine and says, this is my body, uh, this, is, this is my blood. And it's possible that, that John, who obviously knew the Last Supper because he was there, uh, um, has this quotation from Jesus as a pretty fitting substitute. Because both are saying the same thing, friends. They're saying, if you want eternal life, if you want to escape the judgment of God falling on the world, that it might pass over you, you must benefit from Jesus, from his self-giving, from his death on your behalf. You must partake of him like the gift of food and drink. So the question, obviously, the most important question, and the question where I'll end tonight, is how 
do we partake of this meal? How do we receive this bread of eternal life? And fortunately, we don't have to speculate. Because Jesus is actually asked directly back in verse 28. Did you see that? A brilliant question. I mean, the best question. Look at that. Then they asked him, verse 28, what must we do to do the works God requires? Let's think about that. These people are saying, okay, if salvation's in you, tell me what I've got to do. Tell me the work, I'll do it. If I've got to stand on one foot uh, till I die, I'll do it. It'll be worth it. If I get to escape the judgment of God for my sins, I'll do whatever. And you think of the religions of the world and the theories and rituals and regimes that are developed as the works to escape disaster. And then you look at Jesus' reply, which is kind of the key to all of John's gospel, because it's the key to what Jesus taught. Look at verse 29. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Just think about that language. What a juxtaposition. Jesus, what, what are the works I've got to do? Oh, the work is to believe. Which in John's gospel means trust, right? The word pistis in Greek means to trust. The work of God isn't a work of all, at all. Yeah? It isn't uh, obedience, It isn't prayer, it isn't church attendance, it isn't caring for the poor, it isn't looking after refugees. The work of God is to trust the death and resurrection of Jesus for your salvation. That's the true response Jesus is looking for, but do you notice in verse 60 there's another response? Verse 60, tragic really. Some find it all too difficult. On hearing this, all this stuff about Jesus giving himself the world, many of his disciples, wow, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching, who can accept it? Many people back then and today sometimes find Jesus too confronting. He is out of step with our culture after all, and that's a problem for many of us because we're desperate to fit into our blip So anything he says that doesn't fit our blip, we're really awkward about. Instead of taking the eternal perspective and say, it's our culture that's irrelevant. It's our culture that's out of step. Oh, this is too difficult, Jesus. Actually, it's the least difficult thing you'll ever hear. Stop trusting your works and trust in Christ's death on your behalf. I mean... It's difficult perhaps to believe. It's difficult perhaps to get your head around. It's difficult for us who want to invest in our own efforts. Yeah, okay, I'll give you that. But it's the simplest, most beautiful thing you'll ever hear. The work of God is this. Trust the one he sent for you. Contrast those people who find it all too hard in verse 66 we read how from that time many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. But contrast that with what Peter says uh, in verse 67 and 68. Uh, You do not want to leave too, do you, Jesus? 
Jesus asked the 12. I don't know how to, um, I'm glad Annie just read that straight because I don't know how to emote that. Because you've got a picture of Jesus with all these crowds that have been flocking after him with mixed motives and now just walking away. And Jesus turns to the 12 and says, you don't want to leave too, do you? I don't know what the emotion is, but it's pretty compelling. And Peter gets a lot of things wrong in the gospel. You know that if you've read the gospels. Peter always always putting his foot in his mouth, but this isn't one of those occasions. What he says is true faith alive. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe. That's true faith. I might not get everything, Lord. Some of the stuff you say freaks me out. I was frightened of you a moment ago when I saw you walking on the water. I don't get you, but I know you are eternal life and I'm going nowhere. I'm trusting you. It's possible today, friends, in this building that some of us only half believe and with mixed motives. Maybe you sort of drifted into this place because you like the community. Maybe you like the intellectual stimulation. Maybe you love the music and the liturgy. It gives you a warm vibe. I can't read your mind, but I do know that Jesus knows what is in every person. And I know that in this passage, he is calling us to give up half-belief, mixed motives, and simply trust that he has done it all for you. Nothing is more important than this. I'm not denying there's much more to Christianity than this. Of course. Nor am I denying that there are wonderful benefits for being a Christian beyond the spiritual. There are social, intellectual, and moral benefits. But my point is, please don't miss the central benefit. That Christ died and rose for you so that you would not be condemned but live eternally because of his sacrifice. Never allow the many and varied works of the Christian faith obscure the foundational work. In the end, the only work that really counts. The work of God is this, to believe the one he sent. So, Father, we pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to give up our mixed motives, clarity about the one thing that matters above all else, the death and resurrection of Jesus for our salvation. May we, Lord, be a people who know that this is the work you require of us in response to your gift. May we believe. May we trust. For we ask it in the name of Jesus, the bread of eternal life, the sacrificial lamb, the Lord who walks on the water.